0: Why don't you take your Bibles and let's get started, uh, Mark chapter 1. We've told you for a long time now, this is our next series, and we're kicking it off today. Um, I looked at the schedule, tried to do some math on this. It's the better part of a year, I think, we're going to be doing uh, this study in Mark. Kind of reminds me of the one we just finished in Romans, it took us a year and a half, and uh, Romans was a great experience for me. Um, I don't care how you felt about it, but it was good for me. Um <laughs> There were so many great things, deep, profound things that the apostle um, taught us in Romans. All the doctrines, all the deep things of God. The doctrine of election, doctrine of sin, doctrine of God, um, of grace versus law, and many, many, many other things. But as great as Romans was, Mark is better. And here's why. Because Mark tells us about the person all the doctrine is about. Tells us about Jesus. Tells us about a servant king, God the creator, come to this world to take on flesh like one of us and to willingly go to the cross and give his life. There's something wonderfully, wonderfully beautiful about that story. And so you might consider yourself a pro when it comes to understanding the story of Jesus. Great, I'm happy for you. But we're going to get close to this thing for a year and continue to look at stories that are very familiar to us, probably. And here's what I know. God in his spirit is so good to take things we thought we knew, to reinforce things in us that that tell us the story of the gospel in a deeper way, maybe to confront things, uh, idols in our life, just what it means to be a disciple of Christ in ways that we haven't considered for a long time. And I also know this, whenever we come to the scriptures, we are absolutely clueless without the Holy Spirit. Every time I sit down to study, I'm, I'm always recognizing there isn't anything to say unless he's got something to say to me and to us. And so I thought we would ask for his favor on us before we start this thing, ask that we'd have ears and we'd sit close to the table when it comes to these truths. So let's uh, pray together and ask for his help. Father God in heaven, I thank you so much for your gospel. This story that most of us, if we're Church people, Christians assume that we know, and, and so I guess there's a part of us that needs to confess before we start that we treat the most amazing story ever with familiarity. God, I pray that your, your spirit would do the teaching, pray that we don't miss the most important parts, and that ultimately you'd bring conviction and transformation in all of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. I uh, asked Paul to sit in, Paul, uh, not the Apostle Paul, he was busy. <laughs> Paul Artino, um, to sit in the first hour and just tell me what you thought. And and there's the first half of this sermon that he said is teaching. And I don't do teaching well. I don't consider myself a teacher. I'm more of a preacher, like you light me on fire or whatever. Um, so you're going to have to endure some teaching because we're going to break this thing up basically in two halves. I'm going to make three points. The first half is going to be the introductory thoughts on Mark. I think it's important for us to understand who we're talking about and who are the players in the story and what's the point of this of this gospel letter. And then then I've got a couple of preaching moments at, at the end. So hope that you can endure it. It isn't too painful for you. But... Um, Let's First of all, let's deal with some of these introductory things. Let's answer the question, who's Mark? Because it's important for us to know this. The scriptures tell us that he's the cousin of Barnabas. You can find that in uh, in Colossians chapter 4. Barnabas is an apostle who was known for his missionary journeys. He shows up in the story of scripture in in Acts chapter uh, 12 in a very peculiar uh, moment in the church's history. This is Herod on his... uh, insane moment, and he's killing Christians for the favor of the Jews. He's already killed James. He's got Peter locked in prison. You know this story, right? And he's guarding him with four security guards, uh, four troops of security guards, and and the angel of the Lord comes and frees Peter while the church is over in a house, Mary's house, who is Mark's mother's house. And and they're over there praying for Peter's release. The Spirit of God shows up, and an angel opens the, the prison doors. We have Peter free. He comes back to Mary's house, knocks on the door. The servant girl sees Peter, runs back and says, Peter's here. And they go, nah. It's probably an angel. I'd rather believe it was an angel than God would answer our prayer. It's kind of the way I I look at it. Anyway, that's where Mark shows up. He's described in, in Mary's house. Mary's house was kind of the disciples' hangout. You know, their clubhouse. In fact, most, most scholars would believe that Mary's house is where the Last Supper took place. So it has a lot of commonality to it. And Mark probably watched some of this stuff from a distance, saw these stories and saw these men and, their, and, and uh, what they were doing. Mark went, uh, is described in Acts chapter 13 as going with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And somewhere in the middle of that chapter, in the middle of that journey, Mark bails out on the disciples, he quits. I don't know, uh, I, well, I kind of do know because how Paul reacted to it. He just kind of got weak-kneed, didn't like the trip. I don't know if there's persecution coming or didn't like the sleepless nights or whatever ministry was, and he tapped out, and he left, and he went back to Jerusalem, and uh, that created a little bit of tension. Now, if you, if you read into the story, the personalities involved, and Paul is that driven, type-A, get-or-done guy, he had no room for Mark bailing out, no, no explanation for his weakness or his quitting. In fact, Mark cons- uh, or Paul considered him a, a, a quitter, a deserter. And the problem was big enough that in Acts chapter 15, um, They're about ready, Barnabas and Paul, to go out on a missionary journey to visit the churches, and Barnabas suggests that we take Mark, and Paul would have none of it. No way, no way, he's a quitter. In fact, the argument became so intense that the scriptures describe it as a sharp disagreement, that they were at odds with each other and never came to a conclusion. Barnabas took Mark, and Paul did his thing, and they just split from each other. Until later on in in the story, something happens. And we know this because Paul has been reconciled to Mark. In fact, when Paul's in prison, one of the persons he asks for is Mark. And he says, bring him to me because now he's useful to me. Something happened. Some restoration thing happened. This is Mark, okay? This is his guy, this guy who got a good start, didn't finish well, or didn't kind of in the middle do well and then finished better. Another thing I think that's fascinating about Mark's story is when he leaves the first missionary journey and splits, he kind of disappears for 10 years. He goes off the reservation. You don't really know anything about him except for one particular passage in First Peter when Peter um, is, is talking about him and he calls him his son, that they're out in Rome. Somewhere Mark got with Peter and split and went to Rome and they're doing ministry there and, and Peter describes him as his son. Now, I, I want to make a point, okay? None of these things in and of themselves are really that big of a deal other than the fact that you have this guy named Mark who has been mentored and discipled by Paul and Peter, in his life, I suppose if you're going to have people to follow, they might be some good ones. Just a thought. And here's why I think that's important it's absolutely essential to understanding Mark in his gospel. Because what Mark writes here in this, this description of the story of Christ isn't his eyewitness account. Mark didn't witness it, it was Peter's account. Peter, the rock, remember? Peter, the guy with foot and mouth disease. Peter, the combatant, this guy tells Mark over a 10 year possibly of, of years of here's the story of Jesus. Here's what he said. Here's what he did. Here's what he was all about and so Mark writes it down and that's where we get this, this gospel of Mark. It's Peter's account. Now I'm gonna make this point because I think it's a preaching point right here on this simple thought. Mark, not an apostle, not a teacher, not a preacher, not a church leader. Just, just Mark at this point, a regular guy, who the scriptures simply say of him, he was useful, and he was he was a helper. Now I want to make a point here um, that should be sort of obvious. We have a tendency to read through the through a lens, a distant lens, into the writers and the people that show up on the pages of scripture. And we see these uh, people here in these gospels as uh, unique and special men, right? Not like us, not, not like us at all. They're the best, of the, the best of the best, and their words and their actions are so different than we are, and so we are just lucky enough to be able to read the language and understand what happened to them. But I want you to understand this, that is just not true. If, you're, if you, in your weakest moment, are looking at these people and going, well, there's something different about their experience. They love and follow Christ in such grand ways that I could never do because of who they were. That isn't true. You have to go through the, even the gospel writers and, and take a, a note from them. Matthew, Matthew was a tax gatherer. By his own people was considered a traitor and a scumbag. An extortionist who grew wealthy on the backs of his people. That was Matthew. Right? You have Luke, who was a Gentile. He was considered far from God. What did he know of God other than what he'd heard? He didn't know anything. John was always angling for a selfish place in the story, Right? always wanted to come out um, in a position of favor. And Mark, Mark starts out as a deserter, a quitter, too weak, too tough for him to, to finish. And so here's the point I want to make. This gospel, this savior, in this story is precisely for those people. It's exactly why the gospel came. Failure in us is why Jesus came. Perpetual failures need a savior. And so here's what we learn, and this is what you're going to learn in the gospel, you probably already know, uh, already, and that is that Jesus came to superabound over our failures. All the things that have scarred us, all the things that we're known for, all the things that we hate about ourselves, Jesus and his gospel superabounds that story. So if anything, as we start this morning, look at Mark and go, wow, here's a quitter. Somehow he became useful. Maybe it's not too bad for me. So I think that's a point to make. Here's a couple other um, unique elements to to Mark. It's the shortest account we have of the gospel story, the life and the ministry of Jesus. It was... uh, Written to a Gentile Roman audience, that's why there's very, very little, um, hardly any Old Testament quotes, and when, when Mark actually writes any kind of Hebrew words or customs, he goes on to define them, because they don't know what's going on. Mark's emphasis is the actions and the person of Jesus, not primarily the teaching of Jesus. You've got to go to Matthew and John to get what Jesus said more in, in a flower diversion. but but Mark is honing in on what Jesus did and who he was, okay, as, as a as a point. And then most, most scholars believe that this was the very first gospel written, the very first person to tell the wonderful story of the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus is Mark, somewhere written in 65 AD. His name is really John Mark, which if I bump into that name once in a while, don't get confused. It's actually his full name. He had a, he had a nickname, by the way. Do you know disciples had nicknames? He, he had one. His name was Stubby Fingers. Um, which is, you'll never forget that, okay? Some suggested it might have been something physical, but more than likely it had something to do with how brief he writes, that he's so quick and to the point that uh, they would call him that. There's some details about Mark that might help paint a picture for this guy that we're about to to read his words um, through the life of Peter, really. But one last thing before we dig into the, the verses today I want to make certain that we don't misunderstand or miss the point of this gospel. Before we start, let's just kind of nail it down right now. This is what the whole thing is about, okay? And I think it's clear from how Mark brackets his gospel. The very first verse and towards the end of the book, there's these kind of parentheses, these brackets around this one predominant truth. Here's verse 1. This story is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Couldn't start more profound without a lot of wasted space. That's it. This is the story. This is what it's all about. The word gospel here is an interesting word. We're so familiar with it. We just kind of read past it. But the word gospel was a word that um, was used in that day of reports of victory at the battle. Okay, When they would come back and have told the story of a victory, they would say the gospel. right, Or some pronouncement that was... Was made, Mark happens to be the very first person to ever refer to that word in use to describe Jesus' life and ministry. This pronouncement, this wonderful, wonderful, true story. And for Mark, it was way more than listing the facts and figures or set of beliefs that Jesus taught. Mark was presenting the person, the king, and his kingdom. So radical. to present him as the absolute. That's why it starts out with the gospel, the son of God. That's who Jesus is, okay? Now, let me take you to the back half. I don't want you to turn there, but I'll remind you of in chapter 15, verse 39, Jesus is on the cross. The sky has grown dark. He has uttered his last words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? And so some help him get a drink, and ultimately he breathes his last breath. The temple veil was torn in two, and the centurion standing there watching the event said this, surely that's the Son of God. Very beginning, Mark says, I'm going to tell you the story about the Son of God. At the very end, the last person who witnesses Christ says, that's him. And in the middle, it's a question, and it's going to be a question that lingers in every message we give in every story that Jesus tells. In chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus is having a moment with his disciples. And he says this, who who, who do people say that I am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're a prophet, a wise teacher. And Jesus kind of stops and puts it in the personal. And he says, well, who who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who said, you're, you're the Christ, son of the living God. Here's why I want to make a point on on the brackets of the point of Mark and why that question is so important. All of these particulars, all these stories and all these words and all these people are meant to portray him as that. You might have assumed that you've already concluded what you know about Jesus, and I'm happy for you. Some of you might be getting close to the story. You might be here because someone invited you here. There is a question that you have to answer. Who do you say that he is? And that's a question. By the way, I hope you don't get tired of because I'm going to ask it at every sermon. That's the whole point of Mark's gospel. It is getting right to the point of Jesus as God the Son, come to save sinners. And so we have to wrestle with that truth. Who do you say that he is? And so what we see in the first half of Mark is um, Mark proving that he's the Son of God by his um, what he did and what he said the second half of Mark about his death and resurrection, all of which point to that one absolute, that he is truly who he said he is, okay? So that's where we're going. But let's get into, I got two simple points into the passage. The first one is that we're going to talk about John, and John is an impressive witness. I've got four reasons why I think he's an impressive witness and why he shows up here. Um, But let's first of all read this passage, and my first point is that he's an impressive witness because he was predicted. Look at verses two and three. As it's written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. It's interesting that the moment that John shows up, um, it probably stood out. There was, there was some 400 years of silence from God as a prophet to people. Go back to Malachi. It was the last time they heard, Repent. The last time they heard from, from God, and so here is this John who starts talking the same kind of language, the same kind of truths to, to his people. Been years of silence until this point. A couple of things that I think are, are worth noting here, John was, uh, wasn't just calling people to respond to Jesus as Messiah as they understood it. He was calling them um, to prepare the way of God himself, prepare the way of the Lord some radical decision or, or, or perspective has changed. From hey, assuming we're going to have a political leader, some ruler, some person who's going to free us from Rome and do us good, this person is the Lord who we're preparing for. Something's going to change. Another thing I think is worth noting is that this isn't a, this isn't Plan B of a failed Plan A. Jesus' coming was prophetic. It was from time and eternity God's plan, right? And that's what the the prophet Isaiah, Malachi 3 also say about Jesus that he is the one to be God's Savior. And then, one other thing that's worth noting, I think, is that, that there's a clue to Jesus' message even in this prophecy. Three different particular times, this, these, these verses describe the way or the path, which was ultimately Jesus' message, if we want to boil it down. He came to say, Okay, here, here I am, the doorway, I'm it. You've pursued religion and you've pursued self-righteousness and you pursue other things. I'm just telling you, there is no other way unto heaven but through me. I'm the way and the truth and the life. He became, he is the one and only path. And so hidden in the words of this prophecy of John when he was going to prepare the way of the Lord was these ideas of, of a way, of a certain way, an absolute way of uh, knowing the Lord. I think John is not only an impressive witness because it was predicted, but because of his message. Look at verses 4 through 8. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all the Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His message was was impressive. Um, To the Jews coming out from Jerusalem and Judea to hear John preach, this was a strange sermon, okay? Be baptized. Jews weren't baptized. Baptized. They would have ceremonial washings, and if you were going to convert from being a Gentile to Judaism, there was a known kind of immersion they would go through, but, but Jews weren't baptized. And John's standing out in the middle of the woods going, okay, you guys, you get baptized. You get immersed. You get into this thing. And the baptism was very specific. It was a baptism of Repentance which we've studied this word before. We've talked about repentance, but again, this was this idea of new identity, a total life change, a reorientation, which was radically different for a Jewish mind. We've got it. We've got the Old Testament prophets. We've got the scriptures. We've got God. Apart from everybody else on the planet, we know what we're doing. And John's out in the wilderness screaming, no, you don't. Reorient your life. Be baptized. Totally changed. And that's what makes his message unique. Um, it's interesting to me that uh, the Jews knew exactly why they were coming because John's message was so clear. Repent of sin. <laughs> You're covered in, in sin. By the way, which, uh, which I think is a, any right presentation of the gospel always starts with sin. And that isn't sexy today, and it's not popular. And I want to say that because when you hear us talk about the gospel, the way in which it's preferred to be presented is that Jesus has some adjustments to make your life. And it's more of a how-to manual to make you happy and, and have money and do well, and, and uh, that isn't the truth. The gospel comes to give salvation to Sinners. And if we don't understand the essence of the gospel message, that it always starts at that ugly, gory, nobody likes to look at it moment, then there isn't a savior for it. He has not come to just simply be an adjuster to our life or to be some kind of warm and fuzzy idol. He comes to be the one and only, and we have to talk about sin. Just like John probably stuck out like a sore thumb saying, everyone's screwed, you're all in sin, be baptized in repentance, that's your only hope. It isn't popular. But any good presentation of the gospel has to be that. It's interesting, he also, um, in his message, talks about one coming. Let me remind you again what we just read in verses 7 and 8. And this is what he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That phrase, um, one who's not, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie, We get it from our vantage point. But you have to understand the Jewish mind who heard this. For for a Jew, um, nobody, nobody washed each other's feet and nobody untied sandals. That was for a Gentile outsider dog to do. Because we're Jewish people and we don't don't stoop that low. Here's how John puts it. I am not even unworthy to do that. There's something significant about how John... Portrays the majesty of Jesus that he is so different, he is so holy, he's so otherly. All the things, all the norms change. I'm not even worthy to be here. He also, in the description of the one coming, talks about the person who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament understanding of that phrase, it was always um, something that belonged to God alone God, God. the Holy Spirit. So so there was no confusion to the people hearing what John was saying. God's going to do something. I'm baptizing you with water, which is symbolism at best. At worst, it makes you a little bit cleaner on the outside. He's coming, and he's going to soak your heart and your mind and your soul and your intentions and your will He's going to soak your, your motives, everything about you. The Holy Spirit's coming to transform you. And that's who Jesus comes to baptize you in. So, this is an amazing message that he's portraying. It's interesting here that it's a perfect description of, of, the, of the gospel message. It's what I mentioned just earlier before, law and love. When John presents this message of repent of your sins, what did they do? Verse five tells us they confessed their sins and they got baptized. They recognized their need and they repented. Thousands of them did. But there's something else we need. You can see your problem, you can reorient your life and change some of your life, but we need one other magnificent thing of which the Holy Spirit represents here. We need God's grace unmerited favor, his undeserved affections. You sang about it, you kept saying, I was sitting over here watching you sing these truths about grace received. Grace is nothing you work for, nothing you can lose. And that is how the gospel happens. Present the law, the standard of God's holiness, who is Jesus, and receive what you can't get and you can't earn and you can't lose, his grace. His message is impressive. One other thing impressive about John as a witness is his character. Look at verse 6. It says here John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a belt, a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. John knew what he was doing, dressing like that. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that everyone would go, Elijah, seen that, been there. I've seen that. 2 Kings, the lifestyle of Elijah. And he was a prophet as well. And Elijah addressed in protest to the self-indulgent godlessness of the people of God then. He, He lived differently, set apart, holy. I'm saying out loud with my life that that's not the way to go. Be different on purpose. And so John's life, just like Elijah's life, was a call to be different, to be set apart. And he lived it, not just preached it. You know, this, this isn't John going to the closet and getting his camel hair coat and eating some locusts, heading off to the wilderness for ministry, going home, putting on sweats and watching football. John didn't do that. John lived in the wilderness. John ate these things. And look this way. To put, portray to the people of God there is something radically different. There's holiness to talk about. There's a God to be honored and glorified. And so he stuck out. He lived it. His, his message was fearless. He called out the religious elite and, and, and just said of them, you're just a brood of vipers. You're snakes. It's fearlessness in that. He, he warned of coming judgment. Talk about a killer message. People don't like to hear about that, but that was John's message. When he began to rise in notoriety and he was really popular and he knew that there was one coming of which he says here, he knew... He must increase, and I got to get smaller. Every bit of it is who John was, his character. There's something impressive about him. He was living different, living small, living for another. The other thing that I think is impressive about John is his passion. Verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John was on fire. I, I, I read um, every once in a while some, some uh, kind of one-liners from pastors, preachers of the past who kind of make a point about preaching, okay? And uh, John Wesley said this about just the endeavor of communicating things that are powerful and, and caring deeply about what you communicate. And he said this, catch on fire and others will love to come watch you burn, in our preaching collective, uh, every week we get done with studying the passage, and then we put up on the, on the whiteboard, what's the burn? Like, what part of this passage do you have to say or you're going to die, right? And so we kind of, everybody's got their own little angle at it. Like, I, that thing hits me, and so John had a burn, and it was obvious. Some say some 300,000 Jews came out to be baptized over the ministry life of John. I mean, it was a full-time, all day, every day, baptism, preaching, ministry for, for John. It was amazing. And, and, and probably I don't need to say any more than this, but Jesus said this of John, among these born, those born of women, none is greater than John. That's it. Out of everybody who's ever been born, Jesus said, that guy, he's better than everybody else. John was a, a passionate man. And so I think he was an impressive witness to the coming of Jesus. But Jesus is the point of this gospel. So let's look at this in the time we have left. Jesus was a surprising savior, verses 9 through 11. on this passage which is really where it is let me give you some observations in this these short verses here one is do you notice the trinity here everybody's present and accounted for if you're looking for a way to describe the indescribable one god three persons well here's one of the stories father in heaven describing over jesus son being baptized with the spirit falling upon him as a dove they're all there trinity's there it's awesome the other thing that I think is worth noting here is that these three experiences that happen in verses 10 and 11 in Jewish tradition signified um, the inauguration of a kingdom. In their language, in their writings, it would be said things like heavens open, spirit descending, and voice from heaven. Um, even that phrase, torn open, heavens torn open, I want to make a point about this. Um, the only other use of that idea or that phrase, is at the end of Jesus' life, when he, when he is about to die and it is finished, he has paid for sin, the temple veil that separated unsinful man from holy, holy God was torn in two, signifying, come on in. Come on in. And, and let me just kind of contrast compare to these, these two moments. When Jesus is being baptized and the heavens are open, there's this wonderful thing where God is being ushered to us. And when the veil is torn, we are being ushered to God. This wonderful thing that happens in these two uses of this phrase where we're brought together, where once sin separated us. It's a great, it's a great reminder. Let me now um, tell you why I use the title, Jesus is a Surprising Savior. It's, it's first of all because he came from Nazareth, a cow town. Nobody comes from Nazareth. Kings don't rise up in Nazareth. Do they? Aren't they born somewhere and coddled somewhere and prepared somewhere? Aren't they the kind of people of privilege and and wealth? Aren't they the people who've learned a lot? These are the kinds of people that are kings, but here is this this nobody from a nobody town called Nazareth. And kings don't come that way, do they? Humble and small and obscure. Our king of glory did. Did. Totally shocking. That's why, that's why nobody could get it. Somebody's gotta be blowing a trumpet. He's gotta be on a chariot somewhere, right? No, he had no place to lay his head. He had no place to live. He came in the wilderness in a small obscure way from a nobody town and he was the king of glory. Surprising savior. One last thought that I'll leave you with and that is his baptism. Just the event of his baptism blows me away. Um, so let me ask you a question: Why was he baptized? It's a great question, I think. In fact, it's such a good question. Uh, John even asked it in the Matthew's account. Hey, wait, wait, wait a minute! Something's messed up about this order here. You should be baptizing me because I know who you are. So why would why would Jesus be baptized? Because John's call was to repent and be baptized. Jesus had nothing to repent of. A sinless Savior a righteous man. He had nothing to repent of. Here's the point of his baptism. He was baptized to associate with sinners like us. He got in a mess. He put himself with the guilty, not for his salvation but for ours, not for his guilt but for our guilt not because he feared some kind of wrath to come that John was preaching about, but because he wanted to save us from the wrath to come. That's why Jesus did it. He came to communicate to sinners who were stuck and lost and clueless. He he came to sympathize with our weaknesses, of which we'll get to even the next passage we get into, where he was off to the wilderness to be tempted. He came to die. He came willingly to go to a cross to satisfy everything that God demanded for us. And he did it willingly. Gods don't do that, do they? Little g gods don't give themselves for their subjects, do they? (laughs) Our God does. The one and only does. It's the only hope we got. That God would somehow satisfy his own standards for us. You see why I say it's a surprising savior? No one would see the king come this way. Broken and small to die. And he is, now this, this whole picture, you're just trying to get your head around. He turned the world on its head, coming as a creature of whom he sustains to bear the weight of sin of whom he's not guilty. That's our Jesus. It is overwhelming and it's surprising. So here, let me leave you with a couple of thoughts. And I was thinking about you today, or Friday actually. I know in this room there are people who um, are sitting here and have concluded in your own mind, I'm not a Christian. I mean, I'm not opposed to some of the things you said, but I have not given my life to Jesus. Then, then I want you to wrestle with the question of, of Mark 8:29. When we go through this series together, you have a question to answer. Who do you say that he is? And if you conclude after we present him as Savior, King of the world, that he is who he says he is, then you only have one conclusion. Trust him. But you're going you're gonna to hear that question a lot. And that's all I want you to do. Who do you say that Jesus is? There is another group of people here, the, the, what I would call legitimately converted, but legitimately struggling. You love Jesus and you know it and you say it from a very very small but very strong part of your heart. You don't have a lot of life, a lot of wins, a lot of obedience to kind of give you confidence in your confession, but you know deep down there's that, that, that glowing ember of faith and belief and your life looks more like tragedy and train wreck because of your actions than it ever, ever could feel confident from your actions. I just want to remind you like the father spoke over the son when he's being baptized. That is what he speaks over every believer. This is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. There is no effort or work or trying or failure that wears God out on us. God sees us through the lens of Jesus and his righteousness, the work that we're about to read about. He sees us through that lens and he says, I am well pleased. So if you're a struggler, take confidence in the fact that's how he sees you. There's another category of Christian who have a lot to show for their spiritual life. Uh, you have journals to prove it, like gobs of things to say about what you've learned and what you know and what you do. And, and I think in the human heart, it's sneaky, but I think in the human heart, there's always a, a kernel, potentially, of pride, thinking that we have something to, to offer God. I just want you to remember as well what John said. We're not worthy to untie his sandals. There isn't anything in us that's worthy of God's favor and attention. So let those thoughts linger in your mind as we uh, pray, as we ask God to open this gospel to us. Next week we start in verse 12. So let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for this wonderful, wonderful gospel story, the good news that Jesus came to rescue sinners that he is truly the son of the living God. And for those of us who believe he is our God. So I pray, God, that we're comforted, encouraged by this gospel. I pray that you'd uh, prepare us to hear and then to respond to what you say. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.